Hi, I'm Mac. Hi, I'm Abigail. And this is Unsubs. the podcast where we recap, rate, and review all 324 episodes of Criminal Minds. And today we're talking season four, episode 11, Your Man. Oh, um, ahem, 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 normal. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had kind of a weird day at work today and we're recording and I'm like, Whoa. Uh, right now we gotta do some fun fucks. Yes, um, we do. Oh, oh, I can't believe I haven't talked about this. I have been dredging through the Fifty Shades extended universe. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, for the past couple weeks, because like when I get into something, I, I, I don't really read. I just like listen to audiobooks. I listen to all the audiobooks. I watch all the movies. And I realized that I had never really gotten into Fifty Shades. And so then I was like, I'm going to get into Fifty Shades. And Abigail was like, okay. And then I was like, wow, this is stupid. And then Abigail was like, yeah. And I was like, but I still kind of love it. I um I remembered today what my Fifty Shades viewing experience was. So this will be my fun fact. Um, it was my, it was it was what ended up being my last in person semester in college, um, for the pandemic. And um, my friend was like, "We should watch Fifty Shades," and I was like, "Okay." Um, <laughs> she had seen it before, I believe. She was staying over at my house a lot. Um, because she had a long, much longer commute to campus, so we had classes early in the morning. So what we would do is we would, like, get in bed and watch, like, 20 minutes of it. Then I'd be like, we need to go to sleep. <laughs> like It was like we'd stay up late studying for our tests, and then we would watch 20 minutes of Fifty Shades and then go to bed. It was so funny because one of the re- versions we had watched was we pirated it was one that had aired on TV so they were like blurring all the nudity <laughs> and we were like we're, no no we can't do this so we ended up like finding it or we might have like paid to rent it or something because we're like if we're gonna watch it we're gonna fully commit so we did watch like a majority of them in like 20 or 30 minute increments and the movies are long yeah they fucking are I don't know how we did it, but it was, it was, we did it. It was funny. I, I mean, I think the movies are ridiculous. I think Jamie Dornan is wild. Um, I also, sidebar, it's related. Another fun fact is uh, because I went to theater school, one of my classes was like an accents and dialects class where we like studied like IPA for those uh, theater people who know what I'm talking about. And then also like, one of our uh, finals was to do perform a monologue with a different accent. But I ended up doing like Northern Ireland, like Northern Irish accent for my final. And my professor was like, I suggest watching like videos or like interviews with people who are 
like from the area or you know who have the accent and one of the only like widely known uh actors who's from northern ireland is jamie dornan so (laughs) i watched a lot of jamie dornan interviews because he's from northern ireland Okay, we have to move on. <laughs> we ha- we need to talk about Norman. Let's do it. Uh, do you want to share our rating criteria? We score everything out of 100 points. There are five categories. Each category can get up to 20 points. And those categories are criminal slash serial killer, character development and character arcs, forensics and contexts, script writing, and background characters. Uh, we are in no way, shape, or form associated with the television show Criminal Minds. Okay. We open in Orange County, California, and we're hearing a traffic report. The traffic's looking pretty good. For now. <laughs> for now. We meet Norman and Vanessa Hill, and they're getting ready for a party. Norman is wearing horn-rimmed glasses and a cornflower blue button-up shirt, looking very spiffy, but, like, very controlled, like, very orderly. But he tops this outfit with a choice piece, a black tie with different colored Mini Cooper convertibles on it. There's, like, blue and green and yellow. I think it's cute. It's not my cup of tea. <laughs> it's not my kind of, like, thing, no, but I think it's cute. It's pre- It has personality. Well, apparently it's not Norman's wife, Vanessa's cup of tea either, because she says, quote, can't be late to my own party, Norman. I got to go. You're going to have to meet me there. You're not going to wear that tie, are you? Not one of my favorites. Can I can I point out now that Norman is played by the same actor who plays Walter Skinner on The X-Files? Yes, we went over his IMDb last night, and oh my god, the man is- He's booked and busy. He is doing so much shit. Give this man a television show where he is the lead. He's incredible. We love him. Not my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> she fucking says it. I'm sorry. And then she she ends that with, not one of my favorites, and don't leave the seat up or something like that, or, yeah. or make sure to put the seat down. And I was just like, oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. So we cut to Norman, and he's now wearing a boring striped tie, which is sad. So he walks into, I wrote question mark, question mark, question mark. It looks like a small kitchen with a fridge and everything, but it's absolutely decked out in car memorabilia. There are small model cars and then pictures of cars he taped to the fridge. And then he's like dusting off the model cars with a small brush. But I think it's like his den. I think it's his man cave. I don't know why there's a kitchen in there, but there is a kitchen. For me, I thought it was maybe like a garage that is sort of extent, like leading to the garage. And it's kind of like his little workshop in there because he also has tools, right? Yeah, he's got tools. The car is in there. But, like, there's a car, there's a partition, and then there's a kitchen. Yeah, it's probably one of those people who, like, keep, like, an extra fridge in the garage. It might be one of those. So we see him get into the car, and he heads off to a party. He has a huge gift, right? 
Yeah, he's got a big wrapped up gift. A very tall and skinny gift, I should say. Okay, so he gets on the road and he's honked at by another driver who cuts him off and almost crashes into him. So she's merging with her car into his lane. And he goes, geez, lady. And then he's like, I'm going to catch up to her and tell her off. So he drives up and we see that she's like a Karen-esque blonde woman. And he rolls the window down and she's talking on she's talking on the phone, but it's one of those headpieces. And he, he motions for her to roll her window down. And we see them exchange words, but it's almost like we're looking in and we can't see what they're saying. We just see that she rolls her eyes and she drives off and he looks shooketh. <laughs> <laughs> like camera on his face just looking like oh my god i can't believe this woman isn't gonna apologize for cutting me off i actually love how we don't see what they're a- hear what they're actually saying we can just see them yelling at each other and yeah she has like one of those like really 2000s like og bluetooth heads. <laughs> And I also think it's funny because you're like, oh, my God, what did she say to him? Like, what the fuck did she say to, like, freak him out? And we learn what she says after the fact, and it's not that bad. And uh, and, and we pan over and we see that in the car we've got the wrapped up shotgun gift. And we assume it's for his wife, and he looks dramatically at it. And we cut to Karen, the driver who cut off Norman, and she's talking on the phone, and she goes, the principal's office called. Yeah. Plagiarism. Ha <laughs> That's literally the line of dialogue, and it's performed like that. The principal's office called. Yeah. Plagiarism. <laughs> the principal's office called. Yeah. Plagiarism. Ha <laughs> The principal's office called. Yeah. Plagiarism. <laughs> She's so engrossed in her conversation that she doesn't notice Norm driving side by side with her car. And he's taking the gift out of the box. And of course, it's a shotgun. We knew that. I'm like, was he going to kill his wife at her party? That's what I thought. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, totally was going to kill it. But instead, he's going to kill Karen. And we hear Karen say, quote, Yeah, well, I was in the middle of closing on that Ocean Park 5 bedroom. I'm telling you, if I lose that commission, it's coming out of his college fund. And then Norm McFreaking shoots her. He shoots her. And her her car flips over and crashes into an embankment, and it's slow-mo, and it's dramatic, and I watched it on 0.5 speed, so you can only imagine how much more slow-mo and dramatic it was at that speed. It was brutal. I was like, that is a, it was a, like, like, that's a horrific accident. It, like, her car ends up, like, upside down. It's, horrifying like that it's the kind of horrifying accident where you know it would cause a severe bottleneck for all traffic cut back to norm and well-respected man by the kink starts playing oh my god i didn't even notice that well-respected man about town doing the best thing so conservatively he 
shows up at Vanessa's party, which turns out to be a party at her work. And it's like one of those fancy office parties. And we see him mingling with the co-workers, drinking champagne, having a grand time. And Vanessa's like watching him like, oh, wow, he's so cool. Like, my husband is so cool. Cut to that night. Norm and Vanessa are in bed. And she says, what's gotten into you tonight? And snuggles up onto him. Cut to later that night. He gets out of bed and we see him walk down the hall. And we see him pause in front of a door. And there's a sign on the door that says Sasha. And it's in like like stickers and sparkles. Like it, it looks like a kid's, a kid's door. And we're like, oh, that must be his daughter. And then he walks a bit farther and stops in front of another door. And on this door, it says Brittany. And we're like, oh, he feels emasculated because he has two daughters and a wife. And then he keeps walking and stops in front of another door. This one says Jenny. And I'm like, oh, okay. So he's under the thumb of a powerful woman who terrifies him because there's four women in the house with him. Excuse you. Our opening quote is, Every normal man must be tempted at times to spit on his hands, hoist the black flag, and begin to slit throats <laughs> by H.L. Menken. Now we're on the BAU private jet. Oh, hey, girl. We learn about the first victim, Karen, whose actual name was Judy Hannity. She survived the attack, but was paralyzed from the waist down. We learn that there have been two other victims, and both of those women were dead on arrival. They're linked together by the unsub's weapon, which is a sawed-off shotgun. All three victims were blonde ladies who were driving luxury cars. The media has also dubbed Norm the Road Warrior. And we learn from Morgan, quote, this type of unsub is the hardest to catch. Totally impersonal victims. A third of the crime scene flees with him in his vehicle. The victim's car's a wreck, and the road is contaminated by all other cars that drive over it. Apparently, the unsub also has been using different cars for each shooting, which also makes him hard to pinpoint. Cut to Orange County, California headquarters, where we meet Sheriff Thea Salinas. I think she was a sheriff. She is so hot. Uh, she has helicopters flying around on standby. She's got the car wreck. She's got bullet castings. She tells Hotch that the media is having a field day with the whole blonde female luxury car owner shooting thing. The BAU focuses on the first attack, that of Judy Hannity, because it was spontaneous. They deduce that the unsub was driving his car during that kill because it was unplanned, which means he was driving a blue sedan. And then Prentice is like, hold up. If the kill was spontaneous, why was he driving around with a shotgun? Anyways, they go to re-interview Judy Hannity, and we meet her son, Rick, the plagiarizer. Rick blames himself and tells Prentice that the shooting was his fault. And she's like, no, you did plagiarize, but the shooting is definitely Norm's fault. <laughs> Hodge talks to Judy, and she's like, after I cut him off, he tried to speak to me. And Hodge says, what did he say? And Judy says, he couldn't say anything. I wouldn't give him a chance. 
And we get a flashback to Norm confronting Judy. And this is the conver- conversation we didn't hear. And we, we, so this is what left Norm like, I'm going to kill her. Like, this is the conversation. This is what she says. What? Now you want to talk about your feelings like some chick? You drive like an old lady. And that was it. That was the stressor. And Judy goes, quote, if he hadn't seemed so normal, I wouldn't have said anything. I usually don't even use my horn. Because on the road, you never know. Prentice goes, so what happened? And Hodge says, she made it personal. (laughs) I want to know what the son was plagiarizing. Oh, God. Yeah, it's really his fault. He was, he plagiarized. Excuse me. Wait, hold on one second. He tried to speak to me. What did he say? He couldn't say anything. I wouldn't give him a chance. What? Now you want to talk about your feelings like you're some chick? You drive like an old lady. Right, I'm back. No, so as I was saying. I wouldn't have said anything. I usually don't even use my horn because on the road, you never know. Cut to Reed building a Jeopardy surface with hot, hot Agent Salinas. And he says, quote, when the victimology is this specific, we know the victims represent a specific person to him, likely a current or former wife or girlfriend. And Agent Salinas is like, why not just kill the actual person? And Reed says, quote, she's just a scapegoat for his own personal failings. He knows if he kills her, he loses that scapegoat. Which I was like, that's kind of the first time that Criminal Minds acknowledges that shit. You know, like in four seasons, because it's always like, oh, he hates women because his mother or his wife or whatever. But like Reed is like, no, like that's just a scapegoat for the guy's feelings, which is like, yeah, we knew this all along. But it's kind of, I don't know, Reed kind of being woke the past couple episodes. (laughs) Reed is is no longer into the... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Reed also realizes that the unsub is using work zones where traffic patterns are limited to one lane merges, meaning that the unsub is specifically going to sites where there are alternate road merges and waiting to be cut off by a woman who looks like his wife. Meaning he's going to the sites over and over in traffic and is waiting for aggressive blonde female drivers. And Prentice is like, shut all the alternate merges down immediately. Was this when I said it's a good day to be a brunette? Yes, yes. Hotch, Rossi, and Salinas go to one of the alternate merge sites um, and speak to one of the workers about a suspicious driver who drove through the merge multiple times. 
We get some light sexism from the worker who tells them, quote, I mean, I even talked to Tony about this guy dressing like a hot ass, but he drove like a chick. No offense. This jackass is wearing a leather jacket and he got sunglasses on. They're married, you know, like the cops, but it was dark out. And Hotch like immediately turns to Rossi and like, it's so dramatic. And he says, he's starting to role play. He's breaking with reality. (laughs) The worker also mentions that the unsub was alone in the car. But when a driver cut him off, who was not a blonde, um, he made this motion like he was trying to keep someone in the passenger seat from being like from lurching forward from the car stopping, but there was no one there. And Hotch is all despondent and Rossi is like, what is it? And like, dun, dun, dun. Hotch is like, I'm afraid that our unsubs married with children. (laughs) I can't even keep it together. Who the fuck wrote this? Who the fuck wrote this? Can we get them an award? I love this. This shit is so fucking fun. This is fucking satire right here. You think the writer of this show who wrote these fucking lines was like, because <laughs> that's what i like i think that this fucking writer knew exactly what they were fucking doing they knew exactly what they were fucking doing with these lines excuse me i can't i can't let's let's do the profile y'all <laughs> the hyper masculine disguises victim preference and emasculating trigger of the first attack <laughs> Oh, tell us that this unsub is suffering a masculine identity crisis. <laughs> oh my gosh. Something happened in the unsub's life. Something so traumatic that it turned a normal man into a serial killer. The world he sees around him has changed and so has his role in it. His perception of his home life is key to his pathology. At home, this unsub feels less than a man, a failure as a father and as a husband. He feels his children don't need or respect him and that he's unwanted and obsolete in their lives. As a husband, he feels emasculated and humiliated by his wife. And these beliefs and beliefs and perceptions, real or imagined, have destroyed this individual's self-image. This unsub is delusional. He's now dressing in this red warrior person, which gives him feelings of power and purpose that he craves. It is now the single most important thing in his life, and he will die before giving it up. His fantasy cannot coexist with the everyday reality of his home life, which means sooner or later he is going to kill his entire family. Oh my god. Shout shout out writer Andrew Wilder. You're sure wildin' with this episode, man. So the BAU has a three-pronged approach to capture this unsub having a masculine identity crisis. They're going to find every owner of a small model blue sedan in the estimated kill zone. They're going to set up a single alternate merge zone in that kill zone. Just one. So he has to go there. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And then they're going to release the profile to the public because somebody is going to recognize him. I have so many notes about this next scene. 
Okay. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> cut to Norm eating lunch at work. He has a little sandwich that's cut like diagonally, which always makes me want a sandwich. He's also got a little bag of chips, an apple, and a carton of milk. What was it that said if you want to make a character unnerving or seem wrong, just have them drink milk? It was Andrew Wilder, writer of Criminal Minds, season four, episode 11. <laughs> no, but that's like um, how in um, uh, Get Out, when we see Allison Williams' character and realize that she's like in on it, she's like drinking a tall glass of milk. But like, honestly, that doesn't sound like too bad of a lunch. It looks like he's having like bologna and cheese. Like, fuck me up with that. I'll eat all of those things. But like at work, like if I did that shit, the ladies in my area would be like, what the fuck are you doing? Also, his coworkers do not respect the lunch. Like you have to respect the lunch. At my work, we have signs that say I'm on lunch. And if someone comes up to me in the middle of my lunch, they'll be like, oh, are you on lunch? And I'm like, yes. And then they walk the fuck away. But like respect the fucking lunch. The man has a sandwich in his mouth. A sexy blonde woman approaches him with paperwork. Hey, Norman, can you put this in my account? And he just, like, stares at her. He just stares at her. And then a man approaches him, and the woman walks away, and he asks for quarterly summaries on some bullshit. And we don't learn his name in the show, but IMDb says the character's name is Burke Manning? <laughs> and Norm Norman hallucinates that Burke Manning says... You're an old, bald loser, and everybody laughs at you. <laughs> Some real cutting shit. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, which is what I hallucinate people at my work say to me all the time. Yeah, it's some, like I said, some cutting shit. Holy shit. But actually, Burke is awesome, because Burke says, look, Norman, the sixth floor doesn't care what's going on in your life or how long you've been at the firm. They're all about the numbers, and the numbers tell them that younger workers cost less and produce more. I like you, Norman. I know how hard things have been for you the past few months. Don't give those bastards on the sixth floor an excuse. You know what I mean? And I'm like, solidarity, Burke. That's awesome. But we also know, it's like, okay, Norman, are you going to take that to heart? Or are you just going to continue killing people? Also, like, I know Norm is bald, but, like, Burke ain't, like, ain't too young and fluffy either. Like, they're probably close to the same age. I know, Norman's <laughs> also, like, not that old. No, like, he's not. Like, you know. And Norm is about to, like, make freaking shoot him because he's got the gun there. At but, work. How did, oh, yeah. my God. But then he's like, nah, it's fine. And then just gives Burke the report that he'd asked for. So, like, Norm already had it done and just decided not to give it to him. He's on his lunch. Maybe he was going to bring it after lunch. I don't think so. There was definitely some rustling of papers and he was digging for it. Like That's true. The BAU is taking the profile public and Agent Todd is going to share it. So, Abigail, here's there are more profiles for you to share in this episode. Oh, shit. I forgot about that. All right. Here's the public profile that we get. A white middle-aged married father. We believe his wife is blonde, approximately 40 years old, resembles the victims, and drives a luxury sedan. 
This individual drives a blue small model sedan and most likely lives in this area. It is also very possible that this unsub suffered a personal trauma in his life. While Agent Todd is informing the public via press release, Norm's office is tuned in, and Norm sees the press release, and so does Blondie McBlondhead from earlier. And Norm hallucinates that she hears the press release and says, All points bulletin, be on the lookout for a worthless loser named Norman, who resents anyone with a life and kills just to prove he's not an emasculated loser. Cut to Norm in the car having a mental breakdown. He starts fighting with an invisible person in the seat next to him. And the car that pulls up next to him, there are two guys in it. And they're like, are you okay? And he hallucinates that they're laughing at him. So he freaking kills them. And he he doesn't just shoot them. He fires over and over and over again until he's emptied the shotgun. And it is like, those guys were just trying to be helpful. Also, like, not for nothing, like, it's pretty fucking gory for Criminal Minds because we see yeah. the blood and it's, like, viscous and, yeah, it's it's awful. And we learned that their names were Joe Karam and Timothy Calvert, and the BAU shows up at the crime scene and is like, Norm went off script, except they don't know his name is Norm. Otherwise, they, they'd apprehend him. <laughs> but we know his name is Norm. And the BAU realizes that these killings were triggered by Norm seeing the press conference and he's devolving. And based off of the description of him being formal. So I I guess other people saw vaguely, they didn't like get a really good look at him, but they vaguely saw what happened and um, bystanders describe him as being formally attired. So they're, they believe that he came from work. So I did write working boy on there. And Agent Todd is so upset that her press conference has caused more deaths. Hotch is like, if you can't take the heat, get out of the frying pan. How about another press conference? And she's like, (sighs) so cut to the next press conference. Agent Todd tells the press that the individual is a white. Oh, Abby, you should read this a couple lines of it. A white 45 to 55 male of average build. He works in this area and wears a suit and tie to work. He left work abruptly after seeing the last press conference. And then uh, she says directly to Norm, do not hurt any more people. Please turn yourself in. And then he confesses to his wife. Oh, my God. So we're going to act it out. It's four lines, but I just felt like it was so good. I'm the road warrior. What? I'm the road warrior, the, the freeway shooter. I thought I should tell you. Of course you are, dear. And I'm the Zodiac killer. Norman, something wrong? I'm the road warrior. What? I'm the road warrior, the freeway shooter. I thought I should tell you. Of course you are, dear. And I'm the Zodiac Killer. The BAU shows up at Norm's work. Burke Manning, the man, the myth, the legend, tells the BAU that he thought of Norm after he watched the press conference, so that shit worked. 
we learned that Norm's youngest daughter. Okay, so this is when it takes a turn. It brings us down a little bit. We learned that Norm's youngest daughter Jenny was hit by a car six months ago, and Burke Manning blames himself for Jenny's. <laughs> what the fuck did I write? Uh, Burke Manning blames himself for Jenny's death, but really, it's Rick's fault for plagiarism. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, none of that makes any sense. <laughs> No, you know it's true. All of this is Rick's fault. If Rick hadn't plagiarized, okay. So Burke Manning also tells the BAU that Vanessa, Norm's wife, also works for the firm. Apparently, she just got a big promotion and took a few weeks off to work, a few weeks off of work to celebrate. Cut back to Norm, and he tells his family to all get in the car, and they do. And he's freaking out, and he's driving like a maniac, telling his family that they have to get out of there. And they're like, what the fuck, Norm? Then the police start pursuing him, not because he's the unsub and they've tracked him, but because he's driving recklessly. And then Salinas gets a call about Norm, and then the BAU enter the chase. So we've got Morgan, Reed, and Prentice in hot pursuit. Rossi, Hotch, Agent Todd, and Salinas are going over to Norm's house um, to gather Norm's family and save them. They don't know that Norm's family is in the car. Norm pulls his shotgun out of nowhere and starts firing at the police. And Vanessa's like, Norman, where did you get that? And he's like, I tried to tell you, but you wouldn't listen. He tells his wife that she's just moved on and completely forgotten about Jenny's death. All the while, the police are pursuing him and he's brandishing a a shotgun and Sasha and Brittany are in the backseat. Then Vanessa, Sasha, and Brittany just start berating Norm for letting Jenny die. They're like, yeah, you know what? It is your fault. And I was like, I guess this is a de-escalation attempt. Vanessa even says, quote, I wasn't there. Sasha wasn't there. You let my baby girl die. And Norm is like, I'm sorry. Vanessa says, you let my baby girl die and you think I forgot? And then she yeets forward and grabs the steering wheel out of his hands and crashes the car into an embankment because they're driving on the highway. And for a minute there, they really had me going. Like, I was like, Man, Norm's family is so mean. Like, I'm on team Norm. But nope. Surprise, bitch. It was all a delusion. Back at Norm's house, the BAU team discovers the bodies of Vanessa, Sasha, and Brittany. Norm has killed them all. We have a flashback, and we see Norm shooting them with a shotgun. He first kills his wife. Uh, then Sasha, then Brittany. Abigail, shotgun blasts are loud. Yeah. How did Sasha and Brittany not hear the first shot? And okay, well, maybe Sasha is a deep sleeper, but Brittany really didn't hear two shotgun blasts right next to her room. I have questions. Yeah. So Morgan apprehends Norm. It's not hard. He doesn't have to tackle him. I'm going to say, though, this part, like, actually had me so upset because, like, Norm is, like, getting out of the car being like, no, my family's in there. Like, and I w- I thought that was uh, so, so, so upsetting. 
And then Morgan is like, we're going to get you some help. And I'm like, no, you're going to throw him into the criminal injustice system. And he's going to end up going to jail because we don't ever give people the like mental health treatment that they need. That's right. That's <laughs> fucking right. But that, that was like broke my heart when he's like, my family's in there. It's so well acted and it's so well done. That's when I was like, that's why this actor got this part. And Agent Todd is so distressed. She asks Rossi, did I do that? Is that my fault? And again, I remind everybody, no, it wasn't your fault. It was Rick's fault because he plagiarized. And plagiarizing leads to murder. (laughs) It's a gateway drug. So Rossi's like, no, no way. Well, he says, quote, no way. They were gone before we even got the case. We knew he would hurt his family. We just didn't know that he already had. And Agent Todd says, I'm not sure I can do this job. And we know she's going to leave because back at BAU headquarters in Quantico, Virginia, JJ has come back to visit and has brought Bebe Henry and the entire team minus Agent Todd goes to visit her. Like Agent Todd is just gone. She's not invited. And then Hotch is like, we miss you, JJ. And I'm like, fuck y'all. Fuck y'all right now. Never giving Agent Todd a fucking goddamn chance with this bullshit. What the fuck is that? She's not even in the scene? Are you kidding me? Like, I don't know what happened, but some shit happened. Like, I wonder if something happened with that actress and the writers, like a whole fucking- No, she was probably only contracted for these episodes. And then, I don't know, maybe- Maybe her her contract was up and they didn't get to that last scene. Yeah, I I don't fucking know, dude. Fucking crazy. I will say, though, that they knew exactly what they were doing. Having Morgan hold JJ's baby, like, that wasn't some sort of trap for the female gaze. That that was that was a lot of fun. But should we should we dive a little deeper? Yeah, so I did my deep dive on toxic masculinity. Um, I pulled from a couple different articles. I have them all linked. And so let's first start with like a Wikipedia definition of what con- uh, of what toxic masculinity is. So the concept of toxic masculinity is used in academic and media discussions of masculinity to refer to certain cultural norms that are associated with harm to society and men themselves. Traditional stereotypes of men as socially dominant, along with related traits such as misogyny and homophobia, can be considered toxic do their part in their promotion of violence, including sexual assault and domestic violence. The socialization of boys in patriarchal societies often normalize violence, um, such as in the saying, boys will be boys, about bullying and aggression. So that's just the blanket definition of what um, toxic masculinity is. So then I actually read an article called The Problem with the Fight Against Toxic Masculinity, and I made sure all of these articles were written by women that I refer to. All right, so the phrase was 
coined in a mythopoetic men's movement of like the 80s and 90s, which was motivated as a part of a reaction to second wave feminism. Um, so this was like in male only workshops, like wilderness retreats, drumming circles. This movement promoted a lot of like masculine spirituality to rescue what was referred to as the deep masculine, a protective warrior masculinity. So it was like a form of toxic masculinity. Men's aggression and frustration was like a part of that movement, the result of society that quote, like, you know, feminize boys by denying them the necessary rites and rituals to realize their true selves as men, which just, it really just reminds me of the third season of You when they go on their little, like, hunting trip. I was just thinking of that. I <laughs> that was, was like the first, I was like, oh my god. So, the popular discussion of masculinity has often presumed there are fixed character types among men. This one scholar, Connell, was saying, I'm skeptical of the idea of character types. I think it's more important to understand the situation in which groups of men act, the patterns in their actions, and the consequences of what they do. It's a very, like, simple diagnosis for gendered violence and masculine failure. So there are, like, the toxic parts of masculinity that are distinct from, like, the good parts. Also, like, where does this come from? Are men and boys just victims of, like, cultural brainwashing into misogyny and aggression requiring, like, do they need to be, like, re-educated into, like, the correct beliefs? Are these problems more deep-seated and created by a lot of different insecurities and contradictions of men's lives under gender inequality? So the problem with, like, everyone's been, like, crusading against toxic masculinity is that it's targeting the culture as the enemy, and it risks overlooking, like, the real-life conditions and forces that sustain the culture. Um, another article I read uh, was also saying that, like, a man's race and ethnicity also can play a huge role in how he views masculinity, as well as how others, like, perceive him. So, in a 2013 study, it found that among white college students, Asian American men were viewed as less manly than white or black um, men, which I thought was interesting and unfortunate. And also, uh, they say that men who view themselves, this was really interesting to me. So men who view themselves as more masculine are less likely to engage in what researchers call, quote, helping behavior. So that means that they're not as likely to intervene when they witness bullying or when they see someone being assaulted. And then another 2019 study found that toxic masculinity can also prevent men from consoling a victim, calling for help, standing up to the perpetrator, and then men who endorsed the belief that men should be strong and aggressive were more likely to perceive negative social consequences associated with intervening as an active bystander. Wow, holy shit. My last point is I highly recommend everyone watch the ContraPoints video titled Men on YouTube. We've talked about ContraPoints on here before. I love her. Natalie is amazing. 
But she has, it's a very short, it's like a 30 minute video called Men. And she talks about, she's basically like, hey, men, are you okay? Then Natalie also talks about how um, because she's a trans woman and transitioned like in her 20s, she kind of talks a little bit about how she has experienced um, how she's treated as a woman versus when she was presenting as a man. She there's a towards the end of the video, she talks about how people can be like, you know, w- would be frightened of her. And she also experiences when she is uh, like now that she presents as a woman and has like transitioned, she talks about how she has clocked men being afraid of her, like uh, being afraid of her. She talks about an experience in which she realizes that a man she's in an elevator with realizes that she could perceive him as a threat and he's trying to make himself not threatening and is afraid of her perceiving, like thinking of him as frightening. And it's very interesting. I just feel like that we're having like a real reckoning with gender recently and like it's been like coming for a long time but i feel like everyone is misunderstood except for turfs you can go fuck yourselves but i feel that if we are open-minded and listen to other people's experiences and try to put ourselves in other people's shoes that we will all come off like understand with a much greater understanding of everybody's struggles. Cause I'm, you know, like we always shit on straight white men, but like, I'm, you know, my husband is a straight white man and he'll tell me things sometimes. And I'm like, Oh dear God, I want to put you in a blanket and give you a hot mug of cocoa. I'm so sorry, but that, you know, but that shouldn't diminish like the struggles that everyone else is going through. She talks about that a little bit in the video because it's, like, because we are no longer aligning ourselves with the traditional, like, gender roles. It's kind of – she talks about how men might are kind of having difficulty seeing where they even, like, fit in. Um, and I also – another thing to what you were saying about, like, your husband is I also, like, there are times – when uh, there are men who maybe, you know, may be straight white men, but they, like, are starting to, like, discount their opinion because, like, well, I'm just a straight white man, though. And it's like, no, you you might have a huge class in, like, like you know, we, we can't, we you should, like, yes, st- some straight white men need to learn to, like, listen to others and not just spew their opinion but, like, just because you're a straight white guy does not mean that your opinion does not matter and that your perspective might not be valuable. Like, especially, like, yes, straight white man, but also, like, are, where did you grow up? What is your background? What is your socioeconomic background? Like, where, like, what was your family dynamic? Like, you know, you might still have, like, you still can and probably have a valuable opinion. Like, there could be a not straight white man, someone who's, you know, demographically somewhat different than you. And even though they are not, they may not be straight, they may not be white, they may not be a man, their opinion could be like, they could have a completely different perspective. They, they could be wrong because of their upbringing, their class, X, Y, Z, like, and you could be in the right, you know, I don't know, that's really convoluted, but you shouldn't, it's like, I just, it's, it's, 
I've seen guys do that. Be like, well, you shouldn't listen to me though. Like, you know, I'm a straight white man. It's like, no, like we, we've gone so far in one direction that it's becoming just a circle. (laughs) Oh my God. We still need to rate this episode. I know just all, all, all good thoughts and you know, definitely like not the, Oh, that's the other thing. It's like, do you think that the intention of this episode was to be a little satirical or do you think that the rep, because in my heart, I love this episode because I was like, this is hysterical. And in my heart, I want to give it a 100. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like we shit on the writers of this show a little bit too much, but at the same time, like, they have been pretty progressive with some of theirs. Like, they've been really not progressive in some ways, but that's also, it's a product of the time. I don't know. I, I, I think we should just score this episode high because I do think that we have, like, I'm not trying to pat us on the backs, but we do, like, spend time being like, this is problematic and I just had so much fun with this episode. I really enjoyed it. And I feel like we had a good talk. Like, we had a good talk about it. How how generous are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty generous. I would say we could give it 100. Yeah, I want to give it 100. Okay. <laughs> I, I can't believe you're giving this episode 100. It's so fucking funny. <laughs> I know. I wonder if this is going to be fucking controversial out there. I don't know. I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed this yeah. episode, though. I had so much fun. I I hadn't watched it in like a month. And when I rewatched it, I was like, this is a, this slaps. This shit is so good. y'all if you have we we talked a lot about a lot of things on this so if y'all have any opinions about anything uh let us know um you can send us an email unsubspodcast at gmail you can message us we're on pretty much everything unsub at unsubspodcast we do have a website we do have a patreon the links for everything in the and you can follow me at yournewapartment.tumblr.com where I am posting content for the kiddos. And you can follow me at Teen Stages Green Podcast on Instagram and find it and listen to it on all streaming services. And follow ContraPoints too. We'll link first up. Alright.